0: Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every episode of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha.
1: And I'm Patty. Today we'll be discussing the first adventure of new companion Dodo, the Ark. We'll be talking about the Doctor, the companions and the villains and then we will give our thoughts on the story as a whole.
0: The day this episode goes out is also a very special day for Doctor Who. November 23rd is Doctor Who's birthday.
1: That's right. Uh, on this day 57 years ago, the world was first introduced to the crazy Doctor and his magical blue box, which is bigger on the inside than it appears on the outside.
0: Ignore the dark times between 1989 and 2005 when Doctor Who was not being made, with the exception, of course, of the Paul McGann TV movie. It has been an amazing 57 years of Who.
1: We would love to hear your thoughts on Who, as well as your thoughts on today's story. So in order to join in the discussion, you can check us out at Time Teamp, that's T-I-M-E, T-A-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravelingteam@teamproductions.com. at teamproductions.com. Now, though, on to the story recap. Episode 1, The Steel Sky. In a jungle, a cycloptic alien is making his way through the undergrowth when he hears the sound of the TARDIS dematerializing. Dodo rushes outside to take a look at her new surroundings, followed by Stephen, who admonishes her for exiting the TARDIS before seeing if the atmosphere outside was safe or not. Dodo responds by saying that she hasn't fallen for their trick and that she knows that they are actually in Whipsnade Zoo outside London. She points out various animals that are native to Earth and the doctor says that it could very well be on Earth as the TARDIS sensors are giving off strange readings. Else on the planet, a group of the aliens and humans are overseeing a court hearing of a human male. He is being charged with negligence in his maintenance duties that could have severely affected the lives of the humans and the aliens who are called the monoids. It appears that life on the planet is in a fragile state and any action that could prove deadly is heavily punished. The man is sentenced to miniaturization for stasis, where he will remain for 700 years. The daughter of the judge begs for leniency, but the defendant accepts the sentence and is shrunken down and placed into stasis. Back in the jungle, the travellers are continuing in their exploration, coming across more and more species native to the planet of Earth. The Doctor then points out that the jungle appears to be in some sort of gigantic room and that the ground is slightly trembling as well. Dodo begins to show signs of a cold and the Doctor says that they must get back to the TARDIS so that she can take something for it. He then notices that she has changed her clothes to something of for the medieval period and tells her not to go rooting through the ship's wardrobe without permission. She wonders if the Doctor will send her home and he chuckles, saying he couldn't if he wanted to. As they go back to the ship, they are followed by a monoid. Back in the settlement, the court prosecutor, whose name is Zentos and is the second in command of the settlement, is informed of the traveller's presence in the jungle and he informs the judge, who is the overall commander. The commander's daughter expresses scepticism that there could be anyone in the jungle, but the surveillance feed shows it to be true and also shows them the TARDIS. The commander then sends Zentos to retrieve them, but tells him to make it an invite rather than an order. In the jungle, Dodo, whose contemporary vernacular is a source of irritation to the doctor, points out a wall full of pictographs showing mutated versions of earth animals. Suddenly an alarm sound and Stephen goes back to check the source. He sees several monoids probing around the TARDIS and reports back to the others, describing the unnerving appearance of the aliens only to the doctor. The trio rush into a nearby cave and Stephen desperately covers Dodo's mouth in order to prevent her sneezes from giving away their location. They leave the cave when they think the coast is clear and enter a clearing where they can see the settlement in the distance. The Doctor informs the others that they are actually on a spaceship, but before he can explain any further, they are surrounded by several Monoids wielding clubs. In the settlement, the Commander and Xentos are questioning Stephen about how they arrived on the ship, but are sceptical of his claims about the TARDIS. Stephen tells them to talk to the Doctor, and he will explain everything to them, but Xentos is reluctant to grant this request until the Commander overrules him. Stephen then asks about the nature of the ship and the Monoids, who can only communicate through a form of sign language. The Commander explains that they came to Earth seeking refuge from their dying planet. Together, both species are now on their way to Refusus II as the Arta II is dying due to increasingly violent solar flare activity. Xentos voices his mistrust of the travelers, saying that they could be dissident Refusians looking to impede the ship's progress. The Doctor arrives and denies this claim, saying that they are as human as the others and uses Dodo's cold as evidence of their time-traveling nature as the virus was wiped out millennia ago. As he recounts their previous adventures, Zentos dispatches a Monoid to garner more information about the TARDIS and he explains to the commander's daughter that he wants to be certain of their story. The commander informs the travellers that they are currently in the 57th segment of the Galactic Standard Time, which the doctor explains is 10 million years from when he picked up Dodo. The commander says that they are still 700 years away from their destination, and it will be the future generations that will inhabit refuses to. The commander explains that they have taken the entire population of Earth, plus the breeding pair of each animal, which causes Dodo to dub the ship the Ark in honour of the story of Noah. When asked about the location of the rest of the population the commander informs the group that aside from the necessary ship's crew the rest of the population have been miniaturized and placed in stasis in a specialized cargo hold. The commander then tells his daughter who he introduces as Melium to take Stephen and Dota to a commemorative statue that is being built whilst he introduces the doctor to the ship's chief engineer Maniac so they can discuss the ship's technical specs. At the statue Melium explains that it is a a monument made of a nearly indestructible form of rock and it is to be of the homo sapien species. Once it is complete, it will be in the shape of a gigantic human. Suddenly an alarm sounds throughout the ship and they rush back to the control room to see a monoid being carried in on a gurney. It is complaining of a strange fever which also starts to affect the commander. Dodo comments that he is most likely caught her cold and this alarms the doctor who takes Stephen to one side. He informs Stephen that the people at this time have no resistance to the common cold and its effects could prove fatal potentially putting their own lives at risk if they are deemed to be responsible. This statement comes true when Zentos, who was listening into their conversation, relays what he has just heard to the assembled humans and Monoids. Maniac then announces that the affected monoid has died, and Zentos orders them to be taken into custody for their crimes. He tells the distressed Melium that they are all at risk, and it is, seems that their journey for Earth was all for nothing. Episode 2. The Plague In their prison cell, Dodo is upset at all the trouble she has caused, and the Doctor tries to reassure her that it wasn't her fault. Steven wonders if they have unknowingly done this to other planets and time periods that they have visited and uh, the doctor says it is possible, but they have been usually in good health during their travels. Stephen comments about how fast the virus seems to be spreading, which further upsets Dodo. The doctor is at a loss for how to comfort her and tells her that she needs to rest while he voices his annoyance that their imprisonment is stopping them from helping find a cure. In the control room, Zentos monitors surveillance footage of monoids succumbing to the effects of the virus. It seems to be affecting them worse than the humans. In his chamber, the commander is slipping in and out of a fever state, and the medical officer says his prognosis is not good, due to the records on combating the cold being lost. During a lucid moment, the commander begs Melium to ensure that the journey continues and make sure the ship refuses to. Outside their cell, the travellers witness a monoid funeral procession go past as it makes its way towards the control room. All deceased bodies are being ejected into space to prevent further contamination. Xentos uses this opportunity to call for a trial to punish the Doctor and his companions, but he's surprised when Maniac and Melium take the position of the Defence counsel. They inform the travellers that one of them must present evidence in their case, and Stephen offers to go, as this will allow the Doctor time to think about how to help this ship. In the trial, Stephen and the others are accused of being Refugean spies, and their story being time travellers is a lie. Stephen denies these claims and questions the scientific advancements of Earth if its people can fall prey to a common cold. He also states that because of Zentos' suspicious nature, mankind has not evolved as much as Zentos thinks it has. Maniac cuts through the argument by suggesting that if released, the doctor could help create a cure, but Zentos whips the crowd up into a frenzy to support his views. Throughout the trial, Stephen has been showing steadily increasing signs that he also has the virus, a fact that does not go unnoticed by the doctor and Dodo who are observing the trial from their cell. Maniac calls for quiet as he puts forward his defence, stating that if they were spies, why would the travellers put themselves in harm's way by catching the virus? He also asks what is the logic of expelling them from the ship if they can help create a cure. Suddenly, the prosecutor receives words that the first human patient has died, which sways the court's vote to guilty. As the Monite guards go to take Stephen from his cell, he collapses, confirming that he has the virus. Upon Stephen being returned to their cell, the Doctor again implores Xentos to see reason and that he potentially risks the safety of the ship by sentencing them to death but it is to no avail. However, the commander intercedes and orders Xentos to release the prisoners and allow the Doctor to attempt to create a cure under the proviso that Stephen be the first test subject. Xentos reluctantly agrees and the Doctor begins his work. He dispatches Dodo to retrieve supplies from the TARDIS, orders Melium to ensure that all those affected be kept warm and tasks Maniac with gathering membrane samples from several animals. The Doctor administers the vaccine to Stephen, but rather than wait to see if it works, he goes to the other afflicted to administer them as well, rather than risk further loss of life. The cure is to success, and the Doctor begins an immunization process for the rest of the ship. The Travellers are given a friendly send-off, and Zentos apologizing for his earlier behavior. The TARDIS dematerializes, but rematerializes in the exact same spot, a fact which seems to confuse the Doctor. The Travellers make their way through the ship to reunite with their friends, but find it strangely empty. Dodo calls the other's attention to the fact that the commemorative statue has been completed, but instead of resembling a human, it looks like a monoid. Episode 3. The Return The Doctor says that they have arrived 700 years into the future, as the Ark is about to complete its journey. The Hallways in the ship are in a poor state, with plants overgrowing and leaves littering the floor. They enter the control room and see it's completely empty, and as they investigate, the Doctor draws their attention to the main console, which seems to have been upgraded with a more advanced autopilot feature. They take a look at the security cameras to see if they can find any signs of life outside of the stasis pods and they see several signs that the dynamic of the ship has changed, with humans now acting as servants for the Monoids. A group of Monoids and humans arrive and one of the Monoids, who now have the ability to speak through a voice box, demands to know who the Travelers are. The Doctor tells him of their previous experience on the ship and the Monoid says that in the interim, his people rose up against the humans and that they are now leaders of the Ark. He then says that he will take them to their leader. They are brought to the leader's chamber where he is reviewing old security footage of the traveller's time in the ship. The leader, who is signified by the number one etched onto his communication collar, asks to know why they have returned to the Ark. He reveals that the cure not only stopped the immediate impact of the virus, but it later mutated and affected the humans on the ship. He tells them that the new virus strain, plus weapons that the humans had unwittingly helped develop, allowed the Monads to overcome the humans, killing many of them and making the rest their prisoners. He then orders his number two, to take them to the slave kitchen for confinement. Word starts to spread about the rumoured return of the travellers, but it is met with scepticism until they are brought to the slave kitchen. After they are left with the other prisoners, Steven says that they need to find a way out, and Dodo suggests that they could try and overpower the Monoids, but one of the humans, Dasuk, says that the Monoids' weapons give them the advantage. A council of Monoids observe the final stages of the Ark's journey to Refuses 2, saying that they will turn it into their new homeworld. Number 1 orders an advanced scouting party to go to the planet and ascertain the Refusen's defensive capability. He then instructs that the Doctor and Dodo be brought to him. When the Monoids enter the kitchen, Stephen and Dasuk try to disarm Number 2, but their attempt fails when more Monoids enter and kill one of the humans. The Doctor and Dodo are taken away and Stephen is told that they will be killed if he tries to cause any more trouble. The landing party arrives and refuses to, but there are no signs of any locals. The scouting party begins to look around and after they have gone, an invisible figure goes and investigates their landing craft. As there is no sign of any local life, the Doctor suggests radioing the Ark to begin landing crew and taking humans out of the stasis. Number 2 makes a comment about it being a short process and Dodo accuses the Monoids of being up to something. Before the discussion goes any further, much to the relief of Number 2, the Doctor returns from his explorations to say that he has found signs of life. He then shows them a large palace-like building in the distance and suggests that they go and see why no one came to greet them at the landing site. They enter the building, but again, there's no sign of the Refusians. Number 2 begins to trash the entrance hall in an effort to draw the Refusians out and ignores the doctor's demands that he stop. They then hear a voice ordering Number 2 to stop destroying the property, and when he does not comply, he is forced to drop whatever he is holding. Back on the ship, Number 1 reveals his plans to Number 3 that he plans to destroy the ship with a fission bomb once the monads have landed on the planet. He reveals that the bomb is actually encased in the giant commemorative statue. Unbeknownst to them, Number One's personal servant, Maharis, has been listening in another conversation. He goes to the slave kitchens and reveals what he has heard to the others, who are sceptical of his claims due to his voluntary service as a servant. Stephen seems to believe him, and so he and Dasuk and the others attempt to locate the bomb. The Doctor and the Voice begin to converse about the Ark's approach and why the Refugians are allowing them to colonise it. The Refugians themselves have been rendered invisible due to a solar catastrophe that has severely limited their species' ability to interact with each other. Therefore, it was decreed that humanity could inherit the planet. Meanwhile, Number 2 and his own manservant are making their way back to the landing craft, but the manservant tries to stop him, having realised that the Monoids don't plan to bring the humans to the planet at all. Number 2 kills him when he attempts to disarm him, and then he returns to the landing craft and signals the Ark. As he is making his report, the ship is blown up, thereby stranding Dodo and the Doctor until the next landing party arrives, even if one is sent. Episode 4. The Bomb On the ark, number one and the other monoids are discussing what to do based on the information number two gave before the signal was lost. Number one decides to proceed with the colonization and orders all monoids and stasis to be prepared for transport. However, number four is starting to show signs of dissent towards number one's leadership, but he is not concerned as he is aware of this and has planned accordingly. On the planet's surface, the refusing expresses his concern to the doctor about the ark and the new intentions of the monoids. He is reluctant to let them land as they will bring an end to the peace and serenity on the planet but Dodo begs them to give the humans a chance to rebel and overthrow the Monoids. The Refugean agrees and says that the humans will have one day to take back control before his people consider a defensive solution. In the Slave Kitchen, Stephen is observing the landing preparations of the Monoids and plots with Dasok to trick the Maharas into allowing them to escape. When he returns to the Kitchen to drop off Number One's lunch, Maharas tells the others that the Monoids are preparing to leave and that he is convinced that they will take him with him due to his loyalty. As he is talking, Dasok sneaks out and the others pretend that he is asleep in his bed, which is actually stuffed with pillows. After he leaves, Dasik returns and lets the others out and they begin to search for the bomb. As this is going on, Number 4 and his colleagues decide that if refuses 2 is too dangerous to stay on, then they will oust Number 1 from leadership and return to the Ark before it explodes. The landing crafts make their way down to the surface, leaving Steven and all the humans, including Maharis, on board to their fate. The landing is a success and once they disembark, Number 1 and Number 3 locate the remains of the first landing craft. Number 1 orders search parties to seek out and destroy whoever killed number 2. Number 4 then uses this to convince the others to back his play against number 1, so they can return to the safety of the Ark and disarm the bomb. Unbeknownst to them all, this is observed by the Doctor and Dodo, who sneak into one of the landing craft and send a message to the Ark. The Doctor says that he will attempt to find the bomb's location and that he will send back some of their landing craft to the ship. He enlists the refusions to pilot them back as their invisible form will confuse the Monoids and potentially make them easier to negotiate with. Outside, they are apprehended by Monite guards who take them back to Number 1. Before they leave though, they see the landing crafts take off and the Doctor denies any knowledge of who is flying them. They are questioned by Number 1 at the city but again they deny having seen any of their effusions, and Number 4 then announces that he and many others will go back to the Ark. Number 1 tells them that they are free to do as they wish and reveals that the bomb is hidden in the statue which is too big to remove and too tough to destroy. Number 4 and his followers leave and Number 1 orders them to be tracked and then killed on the open plains. Back on the Ark, the search is not going well and Stephen berates Maharas for his woe-is-me attitude which is stopping him from helping in the search. Suddenly, a landing craft returns and the refusion informs Stephen and the others what is going on. Stephen suggests sending some people down to help the Doctor whilst the rest will try and locate the bomb. Maharas voices his objection to this and stating that the dream of humanity is over and why should they be beholden to it. Dasuk's companion Venusa says that he no longer belongs to humanity and would be best going down to the planet. She offers to stay on board and helps Stevens with the search. Out on the plains, the two Monoid forces encounter each other and start fighting. The landing craft returns and despite Dasuk's warning to wait, Maharas goes outside to reunite with his master, only to be killed by him. Dasuk waits until there is a lull in the fighting and then he and the rest of the crew disembark and make their way to the city. They locate the Doctor and Dodo and tell the guards that they are needed by number one. After they leave, the Doctor reveals the bomb's location and together they all make their way back to the landing craft. They return to find number four as the last Monoid standing and he lets them go, casting down his weapon in disgust at the waste of Monoid life. On the arc, Stephen and Venusa try to figure out how to move the statue and the Refugian offers his assistance. The statue levitates with ease and it is placed into the launching bay, where it is just into space, exploding shortly afterwards. Later, the Doctor and the others are saying goodbye to Dasuk and the others and echoes the Refugian's mandate that they are only welcome to the planet if they make peace with the Monoids. The Doctor says that their ancestors took advantage of the Monoids and effectively made them slaves, so it's already expected that they would rise up in rebellion. He echoes a previous statement he made to Zentos about travelling intolerance and that he and the others depart. Venusa wonders that if the travellers ever return again in the future, will they once again be thought of as legends, but Dasuk promises that it won't be so. As the TARDIS lands at its next destination, the Doctor fades away from sight, and Dodo wonders if it might be something to do with the Refugians, but the Doctor tells them that they are under attack. End of the story. <laughs> now that that's the story out of the way we're going to go to the next stage of the podcast and we're going to go over to the trivia section with trisha what do you got for us today
0: cool thank you paddington so for trivia today the air date for the arc was the second of no it wasn't it was the fifth that's a five not a two (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the air date for the arc was the 5th of march 1966 to the 26th of march 1966. Writers credited for the story are paul erickson and leslie scott this is the only doctor who writing credit for paul he also wrote the novelization for the story which i always like when the writer does both hmm. paul's non-who work includes writing for interpol calling the saint out of the unknown the rivals of sherlock holmes and Free Wheelers. paul passed away back in 1991 Now, Leslie Scott is an interesting credit for this. So, she's the first woman credited for writing Doctor Who, which is great. Though, this is her only credit for Doctor Who. In fact, it's her only credit for anything. At the time, she was Paul Erickson's wife and was credited as co-writer, though she did no work on the scripts whatsoever erickson later said that it was a personal arrangement he had with her which was his own personal business at the time
1: so she's the first credited female writer but she's not the actual first female writer
0: correct and it appears this is some thing that this man did for his wife for reasons that no one knows
1: (coughs) (laughs) if i do this will you touch it will you touch it now
0: it 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 i i i don't i don't i don't get why you would randomly include your wife in the writing credits of a show that you're in and i don't know why the bbc would agree to it either um but that's oh, fucking strange maybe uh, I, I like i have in my head like that maybe like they just got married and they were meant to be on their honeymoon but he canceled cuz he had to do the show and like i don't know it's fucking bizarre anyway the director for this story is Michael Emerson. Now this is Michael's only Doctor Who directing credit which isn't, which doesn't happen that often. Usually we get people cycling through a bit. Mm -hmm. He was heavily responsible for the visual style of the Monoids and in fact it was his idea to give them that name. They were originally called the Reptiles in the script. The Bomb was the last episode of television that he ever directed. Ever. He was a BBC director, same as everyone else, and they didn't renew his contract at the end of that story. That's not to say his career ended, though. He did go on to be a script editor with the BBC for a while. And then he went on to be an agent, both an acting agent and a literary agent. So it's an interesting sort of career path that this man has had. The final episode, The Bomb, was recorded out of sequence. Which is the first time really in Doctor Who that's ever been done with the exception of location shooting. This is the first sort of set episode that was recorded out of sequence. Because they needed the sets for different things. Mm. The monoids were played by actors. And I thought this was the case when I watched it. They were played by actors, obviously. Duh. But I thought this was the case (laughs) when I was watching it. And I was right. So they were played by actors. Yes, Trish. Each holding a ping pong ball in their mouth. To represent the alien's eye and then just moving it <laughs> to make the eye move. <laughs> it looks so weird.
1: Uh, like, yeah, like it, it, I was, I wondered how they did that effect. Because like, was it just like that they were holding it in their hand and they were like... Because the way the Monides look, right, is that they're very kind of slenderly built. They all have Beatles mop-top haircuts. Yep. They have that one eye in the center of their face like not the top of the head like but just there in the center um they have reptilian like hands i think they got webbed feet but like the way that they walk is like they're wearing like a really tight skirt and it's just like shuffle 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 shuffle
0: yeah so you you imagine like having to walk around all day with a ping pong ball in your mouth (laughs) that's so weird peter purvis didn't like the monoids very much um he thought they looked ridiculous and he couldn't take them seriously I can understand that I don't think they're the most ridiculous looking we've had but
1: no I I, I think they're I think they're grand like yeah they're okay they're not they're not the Thals <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's because they number which one of them is which yes exactly this is the only Doctor Who story produced by John Wiles for which all episodes exist it's also his last story as producer thank heavenly Christ
1: yes because i have honestly the john wiles era not a great era
0: no Wh- which not is a
1: sh- which is a shame like because we've seen some interesting concepts we've seen some interesting characters but just like, it it just felt strange the whole thing the whole execution just felt strange
0: yeah and there are looking at our sort of average scores there are lowest ranked so far. With a running average of 3.19 for you and 2.94 for me. So, on to our cast. Mm -hmm. So, we have a couple of people to get through today. So, let's jump on in. So, the commander of the Ark on the first visit. So, all of these characters at the moment are the first visit to the Ark. So, the commander was played by Eric Elliot. This is his only Doctor Who acting credit. His other credits include... The Small House at Allington, Gilbert and Sullivan, The Immortal Jesters, The Avengers, Ding, and Zedcars. Yeah. Double Ding. Eric passed away back in nineteen eighty one. Zentos is played by Inigo Jackson. I think that's how you pronounce his name. I N I G O. Uh
1: so I think it maybe might depend on where you're from, but I think it might be Inigo. So Inigo, Like Indigo Inigo, without the D. Or more like, you know, hello, my name is Inigo Mantua as you killed my father ah. prepared to die.
0: <laughs> okay. My name is Inigo Jackson
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, Again this is his only Doctor Who acting credit His other credits have included Ivanhoe, The Way We Live Now Zed Cars Ding Double ding uh, <laughs> And Diamond Crack Diamond Inigo passed away in 2001 Side note Zed Cars got a double ding Because it was the second in the list Gotcha so It's his first it was his single ding I. Aye Maniac, who spoke in defense of the TARDIS team at the trial, is played by Roy Spencer. This is the first of two Doctor Who acting credits for Roy, and we'll see him again in Fury from the Deep. Outside of Who, his acting credits include EastEnders, County Hall, The Legend of Robin Hood, The Paradise Makers, and Zed Cars. Ding Dang. again. <laughs> he also worked in special effects, and is known for his work on Superman, 1978, Krull, and Batman in 1980
1: I love Krull. Krull is amazing. (laughs) Actually, um, that's one thing that kind of kept coming into my head was that in Krull, there's a Cyclops character very reminiscent of the Monoids.
0: Oh, Hmm. I wonder if he brought over some of his experience. from
1: Possibly, possibly. That's kind of cool.
0: Hmm. Melium, who is the daughter of the commander, is played by Kate Newman. Again, this is her only Doctor Who acting credit. And her only other acting credit was in a nineteen sixty six episode of Armchair Theatre. At
1: which point armchair? she decided Armchair would- Theatre. <laughs> At which point she decided the armchair was quite comfy and decided to stay there.
0: On to our second visit to the Ark. So we have Maharis is played by Terence Woodfield. Terence also appeared in the Daleks Master Plan as the master of Salation. He was the guy with rocks stuck to him. Or what okay. looked like rocks stuck to him.
1: Oh, right. I thought he was a lizard-looking guy. It, it's hard to tell. No existing footage <laughs> and what.
0: His other acting credits include The Tomorrow People, Zed Cars, Ding, Emergency Ward <laughs> 10, and The Avengers. Double ding. Double ding. Daszak is played by Brian Wright. This is his only Doctor Who acting credit. And in fact, Brian is better known as a writer than he is as an actor, Uh, He's written for Crown Court, The Canal Children, and Spy Force. Venusa, who I keep saying Vanessa, but it's not her name. It's Venusa with a U, is played by Eileen Helsby. Again, only Doctor Who credit for Eileen. Her other acting credits include The Bill, Survivors, and Looking for Clancy. On to the voice of the Refusian. This is Richard Beale. This is the first of four Doctor Who acting credits for Richard. We'll see him again. Well, we'll see him. Which we didn't see him this time mm-hmm. in The Gunfighters, The Makra Terror, and The Green Death. His non who acting credits include A Night to Remember, The Man in the Iron Mask, Where Eagles Dare, Treasure Island, Blake Seven, Bergerac, John Silver's Return to Treasure Island, and A Handful of Dust.
1: I need to find out who he plays in Where Eagles Dare because I knew you would.
0: The, the minute yeah. I looked it up, I was like, Paddy's going to be going looking this up later on. <laughs> Richard passed away back in 2017. Lastly, we have our companion. So as Dodo, we have Jackie Lane. Now an interesting thing about Jackie, particularly when you bear in mind that last week I said I was slightly concerned about the doctor saying that Dodo looks like Susan. Jackie was actually up for the role of Susan. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah. Um, She auditioned and everything, but she she withdrew herself from consideration because she didn't want to Cylon for a year-long contract at that time. So it wasn't that she didn't get the roles that she decided not to go for it anymore. Oh. You may notice that sometimes in the story she lapses into her Cockney accent and the Doctor actually makes a point of we need to correct the accent. There's a reason for that. The production team were instructed by their superiors at the BBC that it was unacceptable for a character in Doctor Who... To speak anything other than BBC English. Now, anyone who knows like old BBC programming, and particularly like BBC radio and stuff like that, there's a very specific way that people spoke on the BBC. You know, it wasn't quite the Queen's English, it was slightly a slight variation on that. Yeah. Um, but the idea of Dodo having a cockney accent, they were like, Nope. I, not it was it was like
1: it wasn't like Silver Black, what's your name? Chuck. <laughs> that was a terrible Scouse accent I'm very sorry
0: (laughs) yeah never do that again
1: (laughs) I can do better I just choose not to
0: (laughs) interestingly Jackie didn't do any acting after Doctor Who and she's the last surviving companion of the classic series not to have any not to have done any work with Big Finish though Dodo does appear as a character Jackie's never come back to do the voice she did go on to become a theatrical agent which is what she did after and funnily enough, she represented Tom Baker, who we'll see as the fourth Doctor, and Janet Fielding, who would go on to play a companion later in the show.
1: Interesting. Very interesting. And for anyone that might potentially be concerned, I looked up who Richard Beale played in *Where uh, Eagles Dare. He is not one of the main characters, so therefore he's a background extra. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but he was still in the film. And he that was the important part.
1: Exactly. We will try it. That'll now become another potential bingo card thing is that whatever connection we can get to Free eagles there and there's like two or three more coming up I think
0: or just you know movies that Paddy really enjoys <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> how bad <laughs> so another very interesting round of trivia we've, we've had lots of dings and double dings on the scorecard Plus, plus my own for Eagles Dare scorecard. Yeah, so yay. Uh, we're now going to go on to the main part of the podcast, which is the discussion of the Doctor, the characters, or sorry, the companions, and the villains. So, as ever, we're going to start off with the Doctor. And Trish, over to you. What are your thoughts on the Doctor in this story?
0: I liked him. I had a few moments where I didn't, and I'll explain those in a second. We're seeing the Doctor as a scientist, which yep. I love. Um, it very much reminds me of The Sense where Ian was ill in that case, and the Doctor is trying to figure out what happened and what's wrong with the water and find a cure um so i love seeing the doctor sciencing his way out of things Mm. i think it's really cool i love his interactions with the refusions or the refusion i suppose singular we only meet one of them the fact that he's just completely at ease and just like yeah cool you're invisible and (laughs) the thing that i have sort of mixed feelings about though is his treatment of dodo Okay. So, he very much treats Dodo like a child. I think even more so than we saw with Vicky or with Susan, to be honest. Mm. Like, why is he so angry at her about her clothes? Now, I think those may have been Vicky's clothes that may have been part of it. But, like, why is he so angry that she went and explored the wardrobe? Why does she need permission for everything? Like, That's a little bit over the top and like, you know, child babying her way more than he has anybody else. And I don't really understand why. What I liked though, and this is going to seem weird as a thing to like, is how he's at a total loss as to how to comfort her. She's understandably very upset because she thinks that she's poisoned all of these people.
1: Mm.
0: And he has no idea how to comfort her when she's when like you know, he keeps saying like stop crying he's like, i'm not crying my eyes are running or my nose is sniffly and i like, i'm actually crying and he's like uh, uh, mm. and he doesn't know how to comfort her And that's very true to his character you know we've never seen yeah. him being You know, he's had some lovely moments with people but when it comes to like you know comforting someone who's actively upset at the time he's not the best at it
1: but it's well, like, is that this is his first time, like, with Dodo, like, trying to comfort her? So it's like, oh, ah, yeah, shit! How did I used to do this for <laughs> the other, like, for Susan or for Vicky?
0: Yeah, um, and actually, you know, jumping the timeline massively.
1: Mm.
0: You know, if we talk about the way thirteen interacts with Graham, and a particularly yeah. a particular scene with Graham that people are sort of torn about, mm. where Graham voices a particular concern. And fear that he has. I'm not going to spoil it too much, but he voices a particular concern and fear that he has, and the thirteenth doctor is just like, I, I'm incredibly socially awkward and I don't know what to say, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do this later on. I'll think of something, and I'll come back and say that.
1: Yeah, like I think there's there's only really two doctors that kind of spring to my. Mo- oh, sorry. Mm. Maybe three doctors that kind of spring to mind when it turns out, kind of comes to like the, the kind of comforting aspect of stuff. I think it's uh, Patrick Troughton and John Pertwee and Peter Davison to an extent. Mm. Um, but like, yeah, like, no, the thing about the wardrobe is that okay. See, we have no idea what happened inside the ship. No. So like, did she just wander into the tardis and come out wearing clothes and then dash out into the into the thing? And for the uh, yeah, like she's wearing like a kind of a, a court pages outfit from like, I'd say like maybe tenth century Europe. It it was just very kind of strange, and it was like, is that something that you would do if you were in someone else's home, where you just like dash in, <laughs> raid their wardrobe, and run out wearing what you thought was the nicest thing? It, it yeah.
0: It just I, it just
1: felt so it just felt so strange.
0: I didn't pick it up at that where she did. Um, I imagined. They were like okay you know have a look around we're gonna fly somewhere and she decided that she found this entire big wardrobe of all these different clothes and she just played dress up. Do you know what I mean? It's like my, my issue with it is that I don't think he'd ever give out to anyone else the same way.
1: Yeah that's actually that that's something I know that it might reflect on the the two people or both Stephen and Dodo but... This is the first, I put it down like this is a new era for the the first Doctor, right? Hmm. In that they're, at this point in time, they're just companions. Yeah. And maybe he's trying to gain back this lost sense of family like that, you know, he had, you know, when he's monologue in like last week's episode, The Massacre. That he, he misses people. Like, he He misses them. And, you know, not just the fact that, oh, I miss having company. It's like. He grew to love them in various different ways, and maybe he's trying to get that back' cause, you know we saw that you know he we he commented about how Dodo looks like um Susan, and maybe he's subtly or not subtly uh what's the thing what's the thing in the back of your head subconsciously, subconsciously. thank you, trying to maybe turn Stephen into Ian or at least kind of get him to get him to learn what like the stuff that Ian learned so at this point because of that relationship I'm just getting this vibe of they're just companions at the moment that sense mm. of family is, is not there as it once was and so it'll be interesting seeing how it's going to develop because like he's not cold towards Dodo like he has that annoyance at the the wardrobe thing and again it, it, like, it's still just kind of like I can kind of see where you're coming from but his thing about re- trying to reassure her and then they just kind of go like I, I I I don't know what it's like a granddad looking after her, like a, 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 a not a very affectionate granddad looking being told to babysit their granddaughter you know
0: Yeah I think as well you know with the doctor in this story you know he's very much himself you know, with, with the exception yeah. of that but which I thought was a little bit weird yeah. He's very much true to form the doctor we've known up until now
1: No there's something that like, I I might have read too much into this because like again oof, we're not watching them weeks apart, we're watching them episode like, I, like I'm watching them, like I was watching an episode a day. Mm. Okay. So we're entering into the last third of William Hartnell's run.
0: Yeah.
1: And we know that in real life, William Hartnell was steadily getting sicker as time was going on. And I'm just wondering, like, did you pick it up that maybe this performance by him was a small bit phoned in?
0: I, I wouldn't say it was phoned in, I wouldn't go that far. I mm. think there was less for him to play with.
1: Yeah Maybe that might have been Like the, the reading I got in Because like, like When there are There are times Like when I feel like His performance is a bit You know It's It's not as kind of like Exuberant as it usually is I'm just wondering Is it the fact that It's just the material That's there Or is he sick At this point in time And is trying to act Through the sickness
0: I think it's This story has less Emotional impact
1: Yeah Oh definitely Definitely And
0: we've had We've had a lot of Emotional impact The last couple of weeks
1: yeah that could be it because like we had the Myth makers, which ended emotionally hmm. we had the Daleks Master Plan which is yeah that's an, emo- an emotional roller coaster. we've had the Massacre which granted he wa- he the Doctor wasn't in it a huge amount of time but William Hartnell was in it and again that ended emotionally so yeah no, that maybe that might have been what I was picking up I, just I think like this was, is just
0: a bit of a lighter story that it just he doesn't have yeah. as much to play with
1: Possibly, yeah. That, that's probably it. But that was my last comment on uh, the Doctor.
0: Cool. So if we move on to our companion, so uh, cool. do you want to go with our returning companion or our new companion?
1: Um, How about we do... So th- how about we do the story-based companion? Like, cause we, because what we've got this time is we decided that because there's various villainous and heroic qualities to both the humans and the monoids, we're going to discuss them in their two separate time periods. Uh, so how about we do the Refusian, mm-hmm. Steven and then Dodo? Okay. Cool. Okay. So, Refusian. Refusian ex machina. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I'm i genuinely interested to know just what the fuck they are. Are they giants? Are they Jedi? Are they shapeshifters? Like, what are they? Because you're never given the impression that they're gigantic.
0: No, he because clearly oh, has a human-sized butt because he sits down. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and they fit in the pod.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I fit in the pod. Their voices of a normal timber, other than the fact that it's like "hello," uh, it's like just fit speaking Brian to. It. Yeah, exactly. Like you know, but a bit more sane. Um, so, yeah, and it's like, but they're managed like they can telekinetically move this huge statue. Presumably it's telekinesis because otherwise they're picking it fucking up or or like they're super strong. I want to know more. Also, did he say that they can't see each other?
0: Yeah. So this is the thing, right? So I, I couldn't remember when when you were doing the recap, I couldn't remember. I was waiting for you to mention it. You didn't. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think he says, so he says that like, obviously he can't be seen. He can see the world, but they can't see each other which makes sense because I've always found in science fiction the idea that invisible people can see each other is weird unless you explain that they're in a different phase and people in a different phase can see other people in that phase but that's not what this is and yeah yeah, so this society it's, it's so hard like it's so devastating when you think about it they can't interact with each other
1: like the only time we've come across like another invisible f- entity was, uh, I can't remember their name now. But the invisible monsters from the second half of Dalek Master Plan. Yeah. Now they seem to be working in concert, like as in like they seem to be attacking in packs. So, like, I would like to know how that was explained.
0: I think I think the difference with the Refusions is that the Refusions weren't born this way.
1: Yeah. No. Have a, so have a, this is a question right if they wore clothes would the clothes be visible or are they wearing clothes and the clothes are because like I, I just have this image of like you know I'm walking around now and no one knows yeah but everyone else could be walking around naked and no one knows
0: <laughs> okay okay you're 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 taking this to like crazy levels um, <laughs> <laughs> personal read of it is yeah they don't wear clothes anymore yes because there is no fucking need mm-hmm Whatever clothes they were wearing when the incident happened probably got irradiated the same way they did. Cool. So yes. (laughs) Assuming they needed clothes to begin with. Because maybe they're like Wookiees. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. Assuming they needed clothes to begin with. I do not think they're wearing any now.
1: Okay. That was funny. (laughs) But I did did like that. They kind of reminded me of the Rills a small bit. Yeah, it's always nice when like, the Doctor has this, this sort of meeting of the minds with an alien race that isn't out to, like, you know, fuck him or the universe or anyone else over.
0: Yeah, the thing that I like about the Refusing is that they are very similar to the Riddles, actually. They're almost the same character, when you think about it. The one that the one Refusing that we meet, because we only meet one of them, Yeah, seems like a really nice guy. Hmm. The fact that they created a world for the Travellers from the Ark to live in. Mm-hmm because they can't live in it themselves is such a benevolent thing to do. And it kind of reminds me of a less fucked up version of Encounter at Farpoint the pilot of Star Trek Next Generation. Yeah. Where you had the weird alien jellyfish Yeah. That was trapped and was creating whatever the humans wanted.
1: Mm. Like the apples and the different colour fabric
0: and the entire, yeah, outpost or whatever. Um, so it kind of reminded me a little bit of that, but in a less slave way, obviously. And yeah. um, because this is the Refusians' choice, the one thing about them, though, is that the travelers from the Ark can have this world if they are peaceful. Hmm. Yes. And clearly, the Refusians have no qualms about using violence when they deem it necessary
1: yeah again kind of like the rills
0: yeah similar to you though i i I want to know more about them i would love if the doctor encountered them before they were Mm. made invisible that would be cool
1: i just you were saying about like um they make this wonderful world like you you hadn't um you reminded of encounter Farpoint. on a more sinister side i'm reminded of an episode of the twilight zone called to serve man where like humans are brought to this planet, and it just turns out like um, it's a very famous kind of trope. It's like, you know, it's a cookbook! It's a cookbook, where it turns out humans are being removed to the other planet so they can be eaten. It's like, cool.
0: Yeah, no, no, it, it, it's somewhere in it's 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 a bit further down the scale than either of those. No, they're
1: be- they're benevolent. They they defend themselves when they need to, but they are benevolent. And I do want to see more. I do want to see. I would like to see the catastrophe. Like I would like to see something like, um, like you know, the massacre or the fires of Pompeii, where they go back in time to see the event or to know it, and the Doctor can't interfere because he knows what's going to come next. He yeah. knows that the humanity will be saved because the Refusians go invisible.
0: Yeah, I think I think that'd be really, really interesting. I, I like when we have these sort of one-off characters that we want to see more of. Also, mm-hmm. like you could just have like you know, the Doctor turns up at like some sort of intergalactic summit.
1: Yeah.
0: And you have the Rills and the Refusians just put there. <laughs> You're like,
1: hell <laughs> We're very sorry about our order. It's grand. We can't smell anything anymore. <laughs> um. So, Stephen. Okay, I'll tell you what, right? <laughs> I will go first and see if okay. I say some stuff that you are clearly aching to get off your chest.
0: <laughs> okay, So. Off we go.
1: First of all, now you know what it feels like to be the pain in the ass that runs out the door. Yeah, yeah, fucking, that, t- that teach you. I think that he is just as dumb, if not dumber, than he was in the massacre here. Yeah. Okay, now, I, unfortunately, I I think I missed it on the, the summary. But Stephen starts to feel poorly while they're in the cell. And he puts it down to cabin fever. He starts sweating and he's whatever you know that you were in a room with someone that is very very sick why in the name of fucking god would you volunteer to testify in front of people that will die if they contract this thing off of you
0: because clearly steven never researched 2020 in his history lessons
1: but no i'm sorry right you're not the most eloquent speaker you're not of the you're not the most scientific mind you, and as has been proven, the person that is a very eloquent speaker and has a very scientific mind, can't seem to comfort your fellow human. Why not let him go speak and you look after Dodo? You. i oh, sorry. Dodo is unfortunately very named. You were the fucking Dodo.
0: I'm going to circle back around to that point. Okay. When we get to our overall. Okay. But keep that, keep that point in your mind. Because I'm going to circle back around to that when we get to our overall. My thing about Stephen, I have said it from the very first, I have tried to like him. I have tried so hard, but Stephen, you're a fucking asshole. Nobody said you could go out. Stephen, she doesn't need your fucking permission. Who put you in charge? Like, you kind of joked it off as like, oh, now he knows what it feels like. No, he's an asshole. And we have talked about it before is it that he's overprotective is it that he's sexist what is it and i'm still hesitant to say that it's sexist because we've only other than brett we've only ever seen him interacting with female co-travellers so mm. i'm hesitant to mark it down as sexism because i i don't think we have enough evidence to prove that point
1: no
0: i am just writing it down as he's a fucking asshole. He's not a nice person. He has nice moments. He's very compassionate. We've discussed that before. But like nobody said you could go out. Who said you could do this? Who said you could do that? Stephen you don't control this young woman's life. And even if you wanted to say like oh you don't know where we are. You don't know whatever. That's not your call. Like That's not up to you. And also you did the exact same things. So stop being such a fucking hypocrite. Mm. Also, I've spoken before about how the way he speaks can come across as very intimidating. He gets all up in your personal space and he speaks quite loudly. And that continues in this story. And I'm not a fan <laughs> at all. The other thing that pisses me off that he said was like, you'll have to watch when she's like looking at the the statue as they're building it. He just calls out, you'll have to watch her. She'll have the whole thing done. Stephen, you don't even fucking know her. Like what the fuck is wrong with you? We saw it starting with her and him last episode, when mm. he was like, "What do you think you're doing?" Like we could be going anywhere, blah blah. And I'm like, okay, that's quite a strong reaction, and I wanted to wait and see how it continued in this episode, and it does continue. And Stephen, fuck off! Like seriously, I, I I've had I've had enough of him. I'm ready for him to not be, I, I, would, I would have been perfectly content if he had left last episode and not come back.
1: He's not in your Christmas card list anyway, I know that much.
0: <laughs> no, and I completely agree with you as well. It's like, Stephen is going to be the spokesperson for the group. Well, that's not going to end well, is it? Right? Ignoring the fact that he's ill, he's a very short-tempered, impatient, dumbass. He doesn't even understand what's happening. How the fuck can he explain it to somebody else? Hmm.
1: Well, no, I... Yeah, again, it's the thing of like, okay, you're, you're, like, there's no evidence at the moment, right, to show that the doctor is human, okay? Mm-hmm. Completely none, absolutely none whatsoever. So you're, there's a fair chance that you can assume that he's not going to be contract the cold, However, you know Dodo has contracted a cold, and you know that Dodo is human, just like you. So, therefore, you know that you are capable of contracting this fucking thing. Now, the cells aren't exactly tiny by any by any stretch of the imagination. Honestly, I say, I just know. I I just think it's. I just think it's dumb. I honestly think it's just fucking the height of stupidity that he would volunteer to go speak on behalf of the merits of just. Uh, no move move on move on because otherwise we're just going to spend the next 25 minutes giving out about him so yeah. we'll, we'll now talk about Dodo
0: yeah uh, my first thought was what is she wearing <laughs> I'll be honest <laughs> it's an interesting choice although then yeah. again my favourite companion ever had some interesting costume choices as well so I'm not really gonna <laughs> dodo very easily accepted the fact that she's been transported in a blue box even if she doesn't think they could be anywhere but earth that's still a little bit you know one yeah. step ahead which which is fine She she clearly has no issue. Oh, we've moved. Cool. (laughs) That's awesome. I I do feel bad that everyone's treating her like a child.
1: Mm.
0: And she clearly feels so bad about her illness and the fact that she made other people sick. Which, you know, they, they kind of... They write it in a slightly humorous way of like, I'm not crying, it's just my nose, I'm not crying. I am crying, I'm crying now, yeah, don't, I'm sad now. They kind of write it in a bit of a, a weird way, I'll be honest. But it's nice that she feels compassion.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, you See, this is the thing now, right, is that I don't think that this is the best presentation for Dodo's introduction. Like, I, 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 I don't, because while it is humorous, she comes across as very kind of soppy and a bit moany, you know, like you know the way we used to give out about Susan with the you know the, I've lost the will to fucking carry on type thing. It's got shades of that, and it's just kind of strange that, like the last time we had a new female companion, like l- like a longer female companion, we would say, was Vicky, and Vicky was you know brash. She was intelligent. She was confident. She was this, that, and the other. No. Dodo is definitely confident in the sense that she has no fear running out the fucking door and kind of saying, ah, you're not pulling the wool over my eyes. Look, that's a zebra. That's a giraffe. That's a big elephant. But just that, that kind of scene uh, kind of completely, it's the polar opposite of what we see at the start. And then she's, I don't think there's a huge presence from her in this story. And I would have liked to, I would have liked to have seen a bit more from her, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say her being upset is the complete polar opposite. I think it was written a little bit poorly, but I think it's completely understandable.
1: Oh no, being being, ups- being upset at the damage you've caused, yeah, no, absolutely. But uh, maybe it's just the humorous nature of the way that it was written. But it, it comes across as very kind of o- overboard... The kind of just like that sort of wailingness
0: yeah I, I didn't I didn't pick up on that but the, but I, I get how, how you would have yeah the one thing that I will say is like she doesn't do a whole lot in this story Um, no. which to be honest most of our companions like if you look back at Stephen if you look back at Vicky
1: hmm.
0: in their first story out the gate they often don't contribute a hell of a lot because they don't know what's going on yeah I don't hold that against her all that much
1: no like and like, I would think that, with, as I said, with the comparison to Vicky, is just that I suppose it's the 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 presentation of the character throughout, like the small bits of stuff, like that. Yeah, she didn't contribute overall like, to the defeating of Benish or anything like that. But she she was just. there I'm thinking kind of,
0: of the Romans for for Vicky, but.
1: All oh, right, gotcha. Um, I suppose that goes back to our like our talks about like uh, the character's best bits and whatever. Is that I had considered the Romans to be in one of her standout moments.
0: Resident. yeah that's yeah, resident. <laughs> yeah 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 um the thing with that i actually i'm quite enjoying her i'll be honest um yeah. maybe it's because she's not steven but the thing i like is that i think the way they played her being upset i could have done without sort of is she sniffling because of her cold or is she crying i could have done without that and just had her be upset and just leave well,
1: and i think like that's yeah that would have been perfectly fine i just think that my my the way that dodo is being presented to me is i think it's very kind of over the top and kind of hamish.
0: yeah what i do like about her though is that while she's not quite as vocal in her own defense as we'll see with some future companions mm-hmm. she clearly is just like oh for fuck's sake she just rolls her eyes at them when they try to belittle her or whatever she's just like yeah whatever she's not taking it from them lightly do you know what i mean it's not just like She's not getting downhearted because of the way they treat her. She's just like, oh fuck it, whatever. And as well, like she is quite insightful and quite willful. Like, she has no issue standing up to the monoids of the future. No. You know, she's perfectly willing to jump in. There isn't a whole lot for her to do, but she's willing to do whatever she can do. Um so yeah, I'm interested to see how she develops. I don't think it was the strongest outing for her first story. Um, I don't think it was the weakest either. And, you know, you kind of compared like the reign of terror a bit of lost the will to live whatever um i wouldn't i certainly wouldn't rank it anywhere near that in terms of a performance
1: no but in terms of the vibe that i was getting it was yeah. just that sort of a vibe no I, I no, i definitely agree like that there's a lot see as a first presentation it's not it, no it's not the strongest but mm-hmm. there's seeds there that the next story and the story after can potentially develop mm-hmm. definitely better than steven in the story anyway i'll tell you that oh, much yeah.
0: that's not hard <laughs>
1: all right no, and before we circle back to that, let's move on to the. This is another new one because before we, like you know, we had the concept of historical characters. Now we're coming into morals, ethics. I don't know. Yeah, it,
0: it, it's interesting. So, do you want to do the humans first or the monoids first?
1: So um, I have the humans in both sections. So how about we do the humans of seven hundred years ago? And yeah. okay, so we have. They're, if you, okay, if we want to equate it back to like say you know the pilgrims of old, they're searching for a new homeland. No, you have the you you have the tropes and tropes come from stories like these. You have the commander who is the leader of his people. He, he he is a very King Solomon type thing where it's like let me hear everything, I'll make the best judgment as I possibly can, and he's instilled in his people a sense of faith. And understanding To the extent of The first person Who's He's like Granted no it's not The harshest sentence In the world He's put into stasis For 700 years Although Thanks to movies Like Demolition Man The concept of Are you awake During your stasis Just scares the shit Out of me Um, But the guy Accepts his fault like He accepts his Sentence Willingly And I mm-hmm. think you can Only get that By having cultivated A system That people understand why they're potentially being punished and they're seeking to rectify it so I like the commander I, th- I think he exemplifies the best qualities of humanity in that regards the same way with Melium because she's his daughter and therefore emulates him But I said therefore no. that's kind of a bit you know fucking not a nice statement Melium emulates him because she respects him and mm. uh, Maniac again doing the decent thing of like look they can't like it's un- it's innocent until proven guilty I'll defend them On the flip side of that though, you have Zentos Who exemplifies every negative aspect about humanity When it comes to finding new things It's They're shifty, we can't trust them You're whipping the crowd up into a frenzy Just all that kind of That negative bullshit that really drives me Insane about people Also Yeah, okay When it comes to Their relationship with the Monoids Yes, you allow them sanctuary but you've essentially cultivated a fucking free labor workforce.
0: Yeah. So, in terms of the humans of the original visit, mm. the only person I'd anything outwardly negative to say about was Zentos, yeah. who's just a paranoid dickhead. Mm-hmm. End up, at, at least at the end, he apologized. You know, which which is good. He showed a bit of growth there. They, I find that these they fall into like this science fiction trope of what I would term advanced primitives. And they've yeah. moved so far forward, they've actually moved backwards.
1: Yeah. E- every kind of out there concept seems, you know, not quite quaint, but just, un- you know, it's illogical. Like, you know, that 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 can't be a thing. Yeah. That's it. A-
0: and they're very mistrustful of the unknown. Now, mm. in one respect, and you kind of addressed this when you said about the guy who gets punished at the beginning, from their perspective they are the last of humanity if mm. anything happens to this ship, they're gone mm. so the idea of an Ill- of people turning up out of fuck off nowhere first of all, who the fuck are you? Mm. where'd you come from? and the idea of an illness that could spread across not only them but the monoids as well Do you know, I can understand some of that I think yes, Zentos does definitely like buys into the trope of, like, fear-mongering everyone and blah, 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 blah. But at least it's... It's an understandable paranoia, if that makes sense. Still paranoia, but you can kind of understand why his brain went there. In terms of their relationship with the monoids of the past... I'll be honest. I read that completely wrong when I first watched it. Okay. Because... I saw it as them deferring to the Monoids a lot. A lot of it was, but what about the Monoids? This was done to the Monoids. The Monoids get to choose. Like, with that first trial. It was Mm. the Monoids who got to decide your man's fate because it was one of the Monoids that was injured or whatever. And, yeah, the Monoids drove them around and the Monoids did this and the other thing. But I didn't really pick up on it as... A slave labor force and that was probably a miss on my side (laughs) (laughs) because clearly we find out when we jump to 700 years in the future that is what it was meant to be that's what it was meant to be portrayed as i missed that the first go around i'll be honest i think it was just my mind hadn't focused on that and i think because they were constantly interpreting for the monoids i thought that they gave them more respect than maybe they had
1: No, no, I like you can, you can kind of see it all right at points where it's like, yeah, no, deferring to the monoids that you are the injured party. How would you like to proceed with this? But then it's kind of clear like that, like, oh, dispatch the monoids to do this, dispatch the monoids to do that. It's like, cool, how about dispatch the team? At which point, monoids and um, I'm not, I was going to save it to the overall, but I might as well just say now, do I like get serious fucking vibes? from watching this oh the original Planet of the Ape series
0: yeah no I I, I totally get that
1: yeah um, um <laughs> ape has killed ape monoid has killed monoid <laughs> <laughs> I know like, that is actually there
0: yeah at the
1: very end like you know it's <laughs> at the very end
0: um so do you want to talk about the humans of the future or do I do the monoids of the past and then jump to the future for both of them no, I
1: think um, actually, no. We'll carry on with the the hum- humanity bashing or lifting up, whatever, whatever I want to put it. Um, no, yeah, no. We'll carry on with the human side of things. So, yeah, like seven hundred years, and you get like you reap what you sow. But that's essentially what you get here.
0: Yeah, I had an interesting thing. Right, so okay. the way the monoids explain it is that somehow after the vaccine. Mm-hmm the humans became very weak-willed and they needed direction. And so that power imbalance shifted and the monoids were suddenly the ones guiding the humans and it sort of evolved to this stage. They don't look fucking weak-willed to me.
1: <laughs> but see, this is the thing now, is that, okay, you find out that the the virus mutated. Fair hmm. enough. No, did it only mutate against humans? I think that's the... I think that's the implication that only the humans were affected by the mutated virus.
0: Although the monoids learned how to speak,
1: in a negative in a in a, in a negative sense.
0: In a negative sense, yeah. It only affected them negatively.
1: Um, no, the monoids speak through use of technology. They don't. They don't have. It's not natural. Oh yeah they, yeah,
0: they 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 gained a greater understanding of technology over time. Yeah. yeah.
1: No, the way that I can kind of put it is that, like, and they also said, like, you know, the humans helped us develop weapons, like unwittingly developed. So is it a case of, because humans were so affected by it, did they potentially fear, um, like a human, component? Like, like did the, the 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 ruling council of the ship effectively fear like a human kind of uprising? So they gave the monoids more power to be able to protect them, and as such, handed over the keys of the kingdom. That's how that's how I'm reading into it.
0: Yeah, well, that, that's how I gather it as well that like they. They weren't sure they'd be able to defend themselves anymore. So they trained or whatever, the the monoids, to do it with them slash for them. And that backfired. Um, The only issue I take take issue with, though, and again, this could just be monoid propaganda, is the idea that at that point in time, so at that 700 mark, Mm. the monoids are still describing them as weak-willed and that's clearly not the case. The humans are intelligent to, enough to know that without weapons they don't stand a chance. But as soon as they have an opportunity most of them barring one or two exceptions go for it.
1: And like uh, yeah I think I think they're judging it completely off like maharis because like maharis is completely like um lo- like you know like oh they'll look after me they'll take care of me they'll you know give me my my sweets. And then it was like they'll, they'll take me down to the promised land They'll take me Here's whatever So And then like obviously Yeah Because look we don't have the weapons We don't have the capabilities Of fighting back It's better to survive You know Yeah That sort of um. So that's where they come in From the weak will side of things But um, They do have that Never say di- I think Venusa more so than Dasuk I think Venusa Definitely comes across As more of the leader For the future waves Than Dasuk does
0: yeah, I think Venusa's the brains and Dasik's the bronze. <laughs> that, that particular dynamic. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, overall, like, the humans of the future, like...
1: The future future?
0: The humans of the future future.
1: I don't think they're as interesting as the humans of the, the future. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't think the 700 year in the future humans are as interesting as the humans that we met originally. Yeah. They're The humans from the second visit are more they could have been anyone anywhere, whereas the humans of the first visit were interesting because they had this advanced primitive thing going. Do you know. Hmm. It was very specific to their situation. Whereas the humans of seven hundred years later, this story could happen in the past, it could happen in the future, and those characters would fundamentally be the same. Hmm. So on to the monoids, who I think the future monoids are probably the only people that I would actually class as the villain, like, yeah. Outright, outright.
1: Yeah, absolutely. absolutely.
0: What were your thoughts on the monoids of The First Visit, though?
1: So, the monoids of The First Visit, um, I was saying that they were, they introdu- for me, when they are first introduced, it's something that I had never seen in kind of an early sci-fi, which is refugees from another planet um, come to us and in order to gain asylum, offer us beneficial technology for purely benevolent reasons like I I made the thing of like you know it's a cookbook uh, with the refusions no you get the impression that look please let us live here here's all our technology we can live in harmony all this type of stuff and then I don't know I don't know if you've seen it but there's a movie District 9 which is it's a South African science fiction movie it's fantastic but again it deals with the thing of aliens looking for refuge they come to Johannesburg and they settle over it and they get thrown in. like after a while they get thrown into slums and they're treated like like fourth class citizens essentially. Mm-hmm. Like and it's their technology is used by gangs and they live in like shanty towns and it's it's a great movie. And it kinda reminded me a of small of, of this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the monads of the past, all they were looking for, I think, was just to survive. And very much in that sense of like, you know, whenever the Planet of the Apes. No, and when Planet of the Apes, the the apes are they're bullied. They are slaves. Like you know, they're tortured and what what not. So I would love to have seen what was the catalyst for the actual monoid uprising. Yeah. Like what 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 was done that seven hundred years into the future, which we we'll kind of jump to now? Why are they like this?
0: Yeah, because like for me, like the monoids of that's it, The monoids of the first age, <laughs> <Yeah. what> that <laughs> Um, were simple but very intelligent, and the doctor comments on it. He's like, you're you're really intelligent you might not be able to communicate at the same level but you're really intelligent and though they weren't able to speak freely they were able to communicate and they were clearly a functioning part of the system on board the ship yeah i too would be very interested to know did their relationship with the humans deteriorate further before it got better or is it just as their ability to communicate and as their access to technology advanced, did they just not like the status quo? I'm curious hmm. to know if it got better before, for them, if it got better before, or if it got worse before it got better, if that makes sense. Yeah, no. Because at the time when you're watching The First Age, None of the monoids appear unhappy in their situation.
1: Yeah, they they don't. I mean, again, like when all the commu- when their face sort of features are so non-descriptive, like they're, they're just so, like uh, non, yeah, non-descriptive, I suppose. Mm-hmm. That and all the communicators use sign language. No, and like there's no real sort of like huffing and puffing when they do the sign language, so it's very like I like I want to know how they got to number one. Yeah. I'll put it that way and speaking of number one is that like he is an example of absolute power corrupts absolutely
0: oh yeah to the Not extent
1: to the extent of you're willing to go to a civil war with your own people who are already refugees mind you you know you like you want to have a civil war just because you hate humans so much Now granted yeah. they all kind of hate the human number four like he doesn't particularly have any Fondness for the humans, but he's not willing to like risk the monoid race.
0: Yeah, I I do find like the the dynamic of we learned to speak and develop weapons, so we took over. We took over mm. as su- a supreme overlords. <laughs> it's an interesting leap. <laughs>
1: mm, yeah, um,
0: I want to know like what were the like what were the middle, you know, um, going from like a Planet of the apes thing. What were the middle two movies in that, or I suppose. Third and fourth movie? Yeah, because
1: mm-hmm. like, yeah, like, okay, so you've got, like, like you've got Planet of Apes and then Beneath, then you have a skin. Yeah, yeah, so
0: I want to know about movies three and four.
1: Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> I, I get two and four confused. Also, you know, to your point about everyone looking the same, at least they wear numbers. Yeah, no. Very good. No, exactly. Clearly they've been listening to you. Mm-hmm. Also, we say hello by destroying other people's things. They just ransacked this place. I was like, Mm -hmm. what the fuck? Um, Yeah, so the Monoids of the future are... Dicks. Dicks. Thankfully, not all of them. And you do get the sense at the end that the Monoids who put down their weapons and who, you know, that they'd be willing to live in peace.
1: Well, see, this, this is it, Nora, is that of all the Monoids that had weapons only number four survives and I love that at the end where he just like he lets the the Doctor and Dodo go back onto the ship and in sort of like a, a what's the fucking point type of thing. It was great. I loved it.
0: I do wonder if there's more monoids around though because it seems like a very reduced number of only four survived.
1: Well, he as far as I know he's the only one that survived on the planet. Yeah. But there's obviously the monoids that are still in stasis. Yeah. So I would say that having one of them survive probably stops history from repeating itself yeah and getting that small little crying statue of the ape at the end of you know Battle for the Planet of the Apes or in this case of Crying Monoid um, so again like I, I kind of like what Dasuk and Venusa Vin- say at the end of the story I would be very interested to see what happens in another 700 years if the Doctor ever came back <laughs>
0: And so we come to the end, where we discuss our overall thoughts on the story. So, Patty, I will hand over to you. What were your thoughts on the arc?
1: So, my thoughts on the arc are that, in terms of performance from our new arrival and our mainstays,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I thought it was a very mess. Sto- excuse me, I thought it was a very mess story. Uh, I didn't think the Doctor was overtly strong enough, or like an overtly strong presence now again that possibly due down to the fact that we've had such emotional stories the last couple of weeks but I felt he was very reduced I'm not going to talk about Stephen because my thoughts on Stephen are there and with Dodo I am curious to see what story number two will bring not because I was so fascinated with her in story one but I want to see if the things that I think are there will actually be expanded upon the concept of the story, though, is what I think is the strongest thing, and I think the strongest thing about it is that you visit a place and then you return to it. And like it's not, as, and not in a way that you know we're left a couple of you know stories later on, you know, to oh, what if they went back to the Ark, you know, return to the Ark, you know, episodes one, two, three, and four, whatever, to do it in the same story, it's quite ingenious. I think it's really, really cool.
0: Yeah, jumping the storyline a little bit. This isn't Peladon.
1: No, it's not Peladon, Or it's not, you know, just like Earth. Exactly <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like. Um, no, that was a, an amazing concept. Like, to the, the show the best and worst of both races, you know, not living in harmony, I'm doing air quotes, mm. then not living in harmony and then, I suppose, effectively being forced to live in harmony. Um, having the Doctor converse again with a race that shares his morals and ethics, you know, it's it's kind of cool it's nice overall i wouldn't go out of my way to watch this story again i'll put you that way if it's on and you know like if, like if i want to watch dr who and it's on like, okay cool i'll do it but to pull from the, the catalog i wouldn't be one of my first ones so i think i would put this at a
0: 2.75 okay for me i think it's a very well made story the production hmm. value is very high yeah. um Bearing in mind that we haven't had a chance to actually enjoy production value for any of season three up to now. Um So <laughs> <laughs> for that, I think the production value is very, very good. I think it's a very well made story. Again, I love the premise. The idea of the impact the Doctor's companions have on the places they visit and seeing that impact the following week. Do you know again yeah. i watch all, you watch this every day i watch it i tend to watch the whole thing in one sitting mm. i might watch it a few times i watch it in one sitting i think that was very very good um we introduced another species that i'm really interested to see more of in the refusions which mm. i like i always like when particularly in our alien stories i like if it's an alien i would want to see more of Where it gets let down, I think, is the character development. Yeah. Not enough time and focus was put into the character development. I think they were putting a bit too much time and focus into the concept Mm. and the premise and, like, the special effects and things, Um, when they could have been doing a bit more on the character development. You know, I kind of wanted Dodo maybe to speak up for herself a little bit um, or, you know, to sort of be like, hey, I'm not your granddaughter, you know, so.
1: And like, there, are, there are times, like, where, like, character development doesn't need to happen. Like, no. for, for example, like, you can go back to the Crusade. Like, you know, Ian was the action man. Barbara was, like, you know, boss Barbara. You know, I was going, like, like, yeah, f- you know, fuck you. You're not going to torture me type thing. And that's what we knew to expect from them. There was no yeah. shocking revelations about those two characters, and whereas here now we've got Stephen traveling with someone that's never traveled with the Doctor before, as like we we we've got like you know with Katarina, she died, and that's the an unfortunate case. There was no downtime, there was no relaxing yeah. time. Uh, whereas with Dodo, we've had that relaxing time, we've had that thing, and he's proved to be an absolute fucking dick. Um, so this is a time like where character development was probably needed.
0: Yeah, the. Where, so it kind of lost a little bit of points from me on that one. Mm -hmm. Where it lost the bulk of the points, I'll be honest. Mm. So I knocked off maybe like half to three quarters of a point for the character development. It's not always needed, but I think it would have been nice in this story in particular if we'd had a little bit more. Mm. Where it lost the bulk of it for me is a carryover from last week. And it centres around Stephen as a character. Mm -hmm. So, I've noticed throughout this season, and yes, I acknowledge the fact that William Hartnell was becoming increasingly more ill, but the show is called Doctor Who, not Stephen Taylor. And both with last week and this week, you see a change of trying to make. At least in my opinion. of As if they're trying to make Stephen the main character.
1: Yeah.
0: You know Stephen stays on board. To rally the humans together. Stephen speaks at the trial. And. I don't watch now. I don't watch Doctor Who. For Stephen.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I watch Doctor Who for. The Doctor. Um, and for me. I wanted to see more from the doctor to make up for the very little we got of him last week
1: Mm.
0: you know but without that character development time put in and you know I think the story could have done with a nice Hartnell monologue you know I think it would have been nice and for me like that's a concern that I have going forward is throughout this season Hartnell is kind of being pushed to the sidelines Mm. And some of that is necessity. I understand that, but I don't like it as a trend. And you know, we saw last week that Stephen carrying the show doesn't work. No. So hopefully we won't see much more of that. Fingers crossed. Um. So for me, I think it's a well. There's no outstanding performances in the story, and the character development isn't as much as I'd like it to be it's a solid story with an interesting premise, it's very well shot Um, the character designs are interesting the idea of the refusion being invisible is interesting would I watch it again? maybe not would I go out of my way to avoid it? no so for me I think it was a solid stable episode with an interesting cliffhanger that I am interested to follow up on next week so I gave it a 3
1: cool that's a fair fair thing. Um, and hopefully now when we come to next week's story, uh, <laughs> literally the doctor won't be completely phased out.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was a, that, that, that's kind of partially where my concern came from. Yeah. Like, they have him invisible. This yeah. better not be a trend.
1: <laughs> so, as for next week.
0: Yeah, so next week we're going to be seeing what happens with our invisible doctor. How you deal with the doctor that's invisible and intangible maybe Mm. when we explore the celestial toy maker
1: ooh so yeah I get to say it now ooh (laughs) Ooh,
0: so tune in next week and we'll talk to you then bye bye